Hi there, this is Healthcare on the Front Lines. I'm your host, Kimberly Aline. Thanks for tuning in for part two of Legacy and Leadership, Black Women in Home Care. For this part of the conversation, Kim Thomas is joining us, and Kim will share uh, very interesting perspectives, um, talking about her experiences as a non-union home care worker, as a Black woman living and working in the South, having worked as a home care worker first in North Carolina and now in South Carolina. So let's listen in to part two of Legacy and Leadership, Black Women in Home Care. Of the 3 million home care workers across the country, many of them still face um, serious financial struggles. Uh, Kim Thomas, you know, is a home care worker. She's going to talk to us about her experiences as a home care worker in North Carolina compared to her experience in South Carolina, um, which is interesting. But home care workers are not always recognized, as we know, as the heroes that they are, the ones who are on the front lines doing the skilled, compassionate work that allows seniors and individuals with disabilities to remain in their homes with respect and dignity. Kim, we're talking about low wages and just how joining together in a union can um, help Black women in home care advance. You're a Black woman in the South. Um, you're a home care worker. What's it been like? What was it like in North Carolina? And what is it like now in South Carolina? Working here in um, South Carolina really opened my eyes. I moved to South Carolina a couple of years ago um, after I got married. I moved, we moved down here from North Carolina. North Carolina was making some strides and uh, the the union is not there yet. However, they were really, I had an opportunity to sit down with the uh, uh, the new uh, governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, and he has personal experience dealing with home health care workers with his own family and his own parents. So it was, it was an eye-opener that he, he had become a big proponent for home health care and what it really what it really meant to the economy of North Carolina, not just not just Raleigh area, the Durham or even uh, Chapel Hill. I traveled all over North Carolina doing home health care and I took care of patients up to 10 years. I was with one patient for 10 years. So I was really fully aware of how intricate uh, home health care was working. My salary in North Carolina was it was competitive, but it wasn't where it should have been, like the $15 an hour. There were days where I would work, I would work, uh, oh, I gosh, three, four days in a row without, uh, without break, going from patient to patient, from home to home, taking care of patients, sleeping in my car while a patient was in physical therapy. And so this was my daily routine in North Carolina. I worked for a company in North Carolina that actually I was transferring from North Carolina to South Carolina, different owners of the company, and I didn't realize that there was a different mindset here in South Carolina, which was really, really eye-opening. So I went from doing um, physical therapy work, uh, trade care, really medical, medically inclined stuff, to helping people do things uh, that they couldn't ordinarily do from cooking to cleaning and things like that. But it was more medically inclined than it is here in South Carolina. So I get to South Carolina and I walk into 
uh, the the company that I'm transferring to from from North Carolina, South Carolina, they immediately told me, oh, wait a minute, you're getting paid way too much money in North Carolina, so we're going to drop you down about $3 an hour. So not only did I lose money coming to, to South Carolina, but they took the money from me in order to do the exact same thing. Now, when I got to South Carolina, I could no longer do trade care. I could no longer help a person with physical therapy needs. I could no longer just walk them from to and from the bathroom because that was, quote, unquote, the nurse's responsibility. So now I ask, what, am I, what are my responsibilities? What is my job duty? They gave me a list. You will do light housekeeping. You will wash dishes. You will do laundry. You will do these things. I'm a certified nursing assistant that carries a license in South Carolina. You have to be licensed. In South Carolina, is there any medical responsibility? Absolutely none. So I went from helping people with physical needs, medically physical needs, to cleaning someone's home. That felt like, to me, a glorified housekeeper. Not that that is anything wrong with that, but then you cut my pay. I carry a license. You cut my pay. I carry a license. You put me in a home. You tell me that what I'm going to be doing is sweeping the floor, mopping the floor, cleaning kitty litters. Walking a dog, poop, picking up poop in a yard, that's what I was doing here. And it really upset me. It really upset me. So coming from talking to a governor of a state to where he was a big proponent to, for home health care workers, for equal pay, for, for even insurance, down to insurance, South Carolina, you have to pay for everything. You have to pay for your TB test. You have to pay for... Um, your, um, and South Carolina has a two-step, so you have to have one TB test, and then 14 days later, you have to go through the same process, and I believe the cost is anywhere from 50 to $65 for these TB tests, so you have to do this twice, and then you have to also pay for your CPR classes, because you have to have BLS and CPR, so there's some things that you have to have in order to be able to work in the industry down here. You have to pay for your own credit report. You have to pay for your own driving record, things like that. So you're not making any money, but you're expected to have all of these credentials and bring them to a company and say, hey, I can work and I can do this job, but, you know, I can't do it. Working in the field for 12 years, just like the young lady in Chicago, I've been working in this field for 12 years, got into it because my mom also took ill and she passed. So I helped take care of her. So, and then come to find out that my mom was also doing this back in her day. She was doing this. So I can't even imagine what her wages were. I can't even imagine how much she was making. And I believe she was working for an agency at the time in the state of Indiana. So it was, it, it has really been a big eye-opener for me to move from North Carolina to South Carolina and to see how they actually have treated the home health care area, field as a whole and as a general, sitting in a uh, continuing ed class with some professors at the uh, college down here, the technical college down here. I am a black woman. I happen to be a gay black woman, and I'm happy, happily married. However. She told me never to mention that. So not only am I black, but don't mention the fact that you're gay. Don't mention the fact that you're a gay black woman and you're married. No one wants to hear that is what she told me. You're not supposed to mention that. And that's here in the South. 
It's always interesting to me to hear how people on the right, Republicans, whomever, uh, however you want to label them, talk about how they want to improve quality of care and improve home care. But the attacks that they're lobbying against these working women, these black women, um, it's actually, it goes against some of their main principles, like mainly overreach. So you want to suppress wages, you want to take wages from us, and you even want to make um, assumptions and have prejudices influence um, how you feel about marriage or gay marriage. And Kim, every time I talk to you, you tell me how much you love doing home care. But your circumstances have had to change due to the environment in South Carolina. Can you say a little about that? When I first came, like I said, I first came, I was traveling. I was traveling uh, with a home health care agency. Actually, I worked for two of them when I first got here. Um, so I came in, came into the door, and they said, oh, yeah, you're going to go see uh, Joe Blow over here and Sally Mae over here. Now, in North Carolina, there was a rule that you could not travel without either travel pay or mileage. So they did not charge you my they did not charge you travel pay. So in other words, you're still on the clock working for a company, going from their patient to their patient to their patient. These are not patients that I got on my own. These are their patients. Company went out and got these patients and I'm taking care of them. I'm in the field. So they said when I got down here, the next thing they told me, not only were they going to cut my pay, but there was absolutely no travel pay between their clients. And South Carolina the client base is really split, spread out. So I could go from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, to Pauley's Island, which is another 30 minutes south of, of Myrtle Beach. Then I could go all the way to Conway. From Pauley's Island to Conway is 45-minute ride. So I'm not getting mileage for the 45 minutes. I'm not getting travel pay for the 45 minutes. So how do you expect me? You cut my pay. How do you expect me to go from place to place? You're not paying me mileage. You're not paying me travel pay. So I had to make a decision. I said, look, you guys aren't paying me enough. So I went to the local hospital here and they said, you have a license. You have all this responsibility. So I go to the hospital and get a job at the hospital. I go through, I think it was a month, a month and a half of screening process, the interview process and all this stuff. You take your drug tests and you go through all the process to get hired on at the hospital. And I make a dollar more than what I was making with the home health care agency. This is a hospital, a hospital. And Kim, if you don't mind me asking, what is your wage? What was your wage in North Carolina? And what is uh, your wage now at the hospital? In North Carolina, in North Carolina, before I left North Carolina, I was making around twelve seventy-five an hour. So it wasn't it wasn't the fifteen dollars an hour that we're lobbying for, but it wasn't minimum wage either. And then when we got to South Carolina, I was making nine dollars an hour in South Carolina. And then when I went to the hospital, I made ten dollars an hour. And you're making aren't aren't you working more than one job? I am working more than one job, yeah. So I want to make this point because a lot of times people outside of our work um, that we're very passionate about, people might hear that someone makes twelve seventy five or thirteen twenty five or thirteen fifteen an hour and think, oh, well, that's plenty. But it is not. Um, that is why Kim is working two jobs. Many home care workers work more than one job to make ends meet. So it's really actually maddening that Kim has to. Uh, maintain all of these certifications and, as she said, credentials um, to now 
possibly scoop up kitty litter. Fatima, what are examples of solutions to this kind of systemic racism that's holding Kim um, and, you know, other home care workers across the country and really all of us back? Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that systemic racism really holds all of us back because what it really means is that it is that people are not able to do the work that they love, the work that they joy enjoy with respect and with dignity in the way that they deserve to. And that hurts not only the people who are trying to do that work, that hopes that, that hurts the people who are on the receiving end of that work. That means that you might not get that person who's willing and ready to engage in some of the most powerful work that's out there, which is care work. So, I, you know, we are all hurt by systemic racism, but uh, Black women in particular also have not just the indignity of racism, it is also the financial impact that they bear and carry with them, which hurts themselves and and their families. But for sure, there are solutions. Some of the solutions I should just name are cultural solutions and the work to continue to grow as a country culturally is important. Some of those things are just um, clear and straight uh, having laws that say even if people's hearts and maybe minds haven't changed, they they actually have to follow particular rules to not engage in discrimination. They have to actually follow our labor laws. And so while you wait for some hearts and minds to change, it's important to have those protections. Unfortunately, as we talked about uh, too often, even in our civil rights laws, um, home care workers have been left out either because of what their technical employment status is or because they're working for smaller employers, a range of, of giant loopholes both in our labor laws and in our um, non-discrimination laws make it harder, especially for home care workers, to enforce their protections. So some of these solutions are actually being sure that they can exercise their rights under the law. I've been really excited about work that's happened around the country to provide very specific protections so that home care workers are included in um, both our non-discrimination laws, but also our labor protections. Um, You've seen that happening in important ways at the state level. There have also been important steps Um, in the last administration that provided additional safeguards and protections for home care workers. Uh, You know, we are vigilantly watching to ensure that this administration doesn't roll those back, but instead that we are moving forward in our march to ensure that everyone can work with the dignity that they deserve. So, Carrie, I want to ask you uh, this. So you heard Kim talk about her experience as a black gay woman um, in South Carolina and how people have responded to that. Um, Certainly, you know, we know that these attacks from the right, from the Trump administration, uh, vis-a-vis CMS, uh, SPN, the Freedom Foundation, they're really rooted in racism. But in, but there's also a sexism piece to it as well. What is the, is there a link um, to the historical context that you talked about earlier and the Me Too movement? And, and if so, who is protecting home care workers in this moment of Me Too? Yeah, um, I think that's a that's a very good um, that's a very good question. Uh, but in unstable and low paid job uh, like home care, 
workers are often the whims of our of their clients. So particularly if they're, um, you know, um, moving from place to place or sometimes live um, live within um, sexual harassment can be, you know, humiliating to anyone, but it's compounded for home care workers, um, especially when they're in situations where they can't just get up and leave because the um, the wage that they're earning, albeit low, very low, below living wage, in many cases, um, you know, they rely on that to pay their bills and to take care of their families. Um, and then there is this um, challenge, I believe, uh, and Fatima, you should weigh in, you know, on it as well, uh, like who is the like who is the boss? Who is the client? Right. And so when an abusive person is not really a boss but a client, a patient, um, and um, someone whom you work for, provide care for, uh, the reality and the circumstances become more compounded. And sexual harassment is just another expression of power. And it's commonplace. Um, and with the Me Too moment, it is uh, a good question that many have been asking, who is protecting, uh, you know, home care workers? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging uh, to unpack and it's more complex uh, when there aren't uh, standard laws um, that uh, protect them. I, this is the team. If I could just jump in, um, I think that you are absolutely right. And those are some of the loopholes that have allowed for home care work to sometimes be extremely unsafe work, right? The idea that uh, it, it should not be a controversial principle that everyone should be able to work with safety and dignity, no matter what your role is no matter what your employment relationship is, if you are working, you should be able to do that work safely and with dignity. And so the one of the really important things I think that has happened since Me Too went viral is a deep understanding of that principle, a much deeper understanding. And so what you're seeing is in different states around the country for the first time, people looking at the problems in our laws and looking to protect home care workers. I will tell you at the National Women's Law Center, we run the Times Legal Defense Fund, and we've heard from over 3,000 people who have contacted us trying to get assistance, attorneys and other sorts of assistance to support them um, because of harassment and violence they've experienced while working. And we hear from a lot of home care workers and not all of them have protections under the law. And as a country, we should be ashamed about that. We should be ashamed that people who are providing such critical care for our families, for our loved ones, for ourselves, do not have clear and established protections against violence in all cases. You know, we certainly so home care workers are heroes. As I said earlier uh, during the show, they do skilled, compassionate, essential work that clearly allows uh, people to stay in their homes um, with dignity and respect. And so, as Fatima said, it should not be a controversial issue that they, too, get that same dignity and respect. So. Um, they, they deserve those protections. They have a right to those protections. 
Kim, I want to go back to you with your perspective of a home care worker, a black woman, a black woman in the South who is um, not yet part of a union as Elantris is. How would being part of a union change your life? How would it even improve the quality of care that you're able to deliver? First of all, I think that a union would allow um, vetting of home health care workers. Um, not everybody is cut out to do the job, but they take the job for uh, financial reasons. And so that's why the job is so transient. Um, you, you can have people come in and work, <clears throat> but they're gone, you know, the next day or the next week or the next month. Um, so I think a union would bring some cohesive and some stability to the job itself. Um, in that, in that you would have a, a, a voice and a, a back, so to speak. You would have a front and a back. You would be able to speak and be heard, and you would have that support once you spoke and was heard. And then you wouldn't be uh, afraid to speak and then afraid to speak because, oh, am I going to lose my job or am I going to be penalized? Uh, am I going to be taken off this case because I said something or am I going, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of a, to me, I think it's a safety net and a security in having a union. Um, uh, having a union also provides for the security in wages, um, the security in discrimination, if there is some type of discrimination, a union will fight uh, on your behalf and with you um, because discrimination is, to me, I think has just taken legs. It's like tentacles on a, on a centipede. It has so many different uh, facets and so many different areas that we can't keep up with it. Um, it's every day some, someone is being discriminated against, whether it's the color of your skin, whether it's the, sh the shape of your body, whether it's the, uh, the, uh, whether my hair is long or short. Uh, when I walk into someone's house, they go, sir, and my hair is short. I'm not a sir. You look at me, I'm, I don't even look masculine. So, you know, that's a small snippet of discrimination, but at the same token, here in the South, if your hair is cut short, they automatically assume that you're a man. So, I mean, is, is, is that fair? No, it's not. But having a union sometimes can kind of eliminate, oh, they're, they're, this, is, this is a union worker. Uh, they have rights. They have, you know, a voice. Um, the union, to me, means that you provide some, a safety net, a security. It also provides a group where I can go and say, okay, I'm having these issues on my job. Is there additional training? Is it, so there's some things that are put in place when you have a union that you don't have when you're like myself right now without that union, without that backing, without that security net. Fatima, we heard Elantris talk earlier about how she uh, started as a home care worker, how she then joined her local union, which is SEIU, HCII, and how it, if it had not been for some of her fellow union sisters who started out making a dollar an hour, who rallied together to, to, to bring change, then, you know, where would they all be? 
Are there examples of um, black women who, like those union sisters that Elantris talked about, are pointing the way forward? Who, who, what are some examples of women who are leading the way, like our union sisters did in Chicago? Well, one of the really exciting things to think about this moment, and I and I should begin by saying. Black women have always been leaders of movements, and I'll say that pretty much of every movement, of the civil rights movement, of the labor movement, of the women's movement. What hasn't always been the case is whether their leadership and their work and the blood and sweat and tears they put on the line was was acknowledged in real time. They've often been sort of like historical footnotes, right? And in this moment, we are are starting to see the leadership of women of color generally, but black women in particular recognize. Um, I, you know, I can't even have that conversation without talking a little bit about my um, friend Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement over a decade ago and whose leadership right now and whose voice is so critical in helping us to understand the moment that we are experiencing where there's an entirely new conversation around violence. So Toronto is just one example. It also, though, brings to mind um, the Black women leaders that I know um, who have historically and today continue to lead the way. I'm thinking of, you know, just over time and for decades, people like Marion Wright Edelman, who founded the Children's Defense Fund and has continued to play a major role um, as she did over the years in pushing for and enacting groundbreaking legislation that helped not only children, but all the many people in their lives who care for them, including childcare workers or people who we know who are leading critical work today in places like Alabama and Mississippi who are leading advocates for um, for children, for families, and for workers, understanding that, you know, children aren't like these disembodied things that exist by themselves and we only need to care for them, that we need to care for entire communities to get it right. But like Sophia Bracey Harris, who founded the Federation of Child Care Centers of Alabama in 1972. People should really know who these women are and know their names. And so I think it's important to not only recognize the critical leadership um, of the Black women leaders of this moment, you know, some who are on this having this conversation with me on this podcast, and I'm so grateful to be in this conversation with you, and and some historically who we got to continue to name their names because the work that they did was so powerful and critical, and I don't know if it was always recognized, or maybe I should say it was not always recognized. So let's name names. Elantris, I keep going back to this story about your fellow union sisters um, who started it all. Can you name some of the, um, some of them? Uh, yes. Um, Flora Johnson was one. We had um, Miss Alberta Walker. Miss Dorothy Glenn was just some of the, the few that I uh, had the privilege of working with. Uh, personally, myself. So just, those just the names, just a few of them. And I think, uh, and also Helen, I can't 
can't at the time I can't re- actually remember her name. I mean last name, but she was also one of the ones that actually helped started um, SEIU in the beginning uh, when they were a different local as well. So was is it was it was just like I said it was really exciting to know that those women were in the forefront of building to where we are now. That's right. Um, and we certainly thank them. Um, and Alondris, I guess my last question for you is, how has being part of your union, SCAU, uh, HCII, given you a voice that you likely otherwise would not have, particularly as a Black woman? For me, it was it was actually going into something that was was actually uncharted territory for me, actually, because I was one that, that never would, Say anything, and was the person that thought that all uh, things happen, and it's something that you couldn't do anything about. Until I actually got into got into the union and got involved, and I realized that when we fought, we won. And having that voice, um, and being able to say, "Well, this is not fair," or go to Springfield and lobby and say, hey, this is what we want, this is what we're demanding, or sitting at the at the bargaining table uh, across from the state and saying, no, we're not going to take this, this is not what we, you know, uh, we deserve more, we do, and winning and actually seeing progress um, has been uh, rewarding to me to see as a Black woman that, we can get things done if we stick together and we continue, continue, continue. I can't say it enough. Continue, continue to fight for what we believe in, for 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 change, for for black women, women of color, for our children, for our consumers, uh, the seniors. Because in my program, it's not only just seniors. I have the opportunity to meet um people that have disabilities uh, that's raising their children, uh, consumers, so, or, or children that would never grow up, you know, uh, because of their illness or their, or their disabilities. So um, when I was, when I was listening to Kim, when she was saying about the, um, I was thinking about what Kim was saying, what Fatima was saying, and what Kim was, the thing is this job has, has been more rewarding than working as an Allstate agent because I see the smile on my mom's face that she don't have to worry about we throwing her away somewhere. You know, the dignity that she still has, even if it is going and sweeping the room, that everybody, I I can't, I won't allow anybody to do to belittle what I do because I take pride in every time the floor is swept that I can look and see that it's clean. It's that I, I'm provided a clean environment. You know, uh, every time the floor is, is the, you're doing something for a person that's not able to do for themselves anymore. Can you imagine how profound that is if a person had no arms, no legs to do anything. What you do 
in your job. You can't let nobody take the meaning and the importance from it. If you're a floor sweeper, be the best floor sweeper you can be. If you have to make beds or whatever, somebody has to do it. Everybody is not made to do this work. Everybody's not a lawyer. Everybody's not a doctor. But the thing is, we make a difference. And because we make a difference, I think we are, this job is, uh, is is a great job. It's a great job. It's not it's not paid. It's not recognized as that. But until that day comes, continue to fight on, sisters. We have to continue, continue, continue. Because one day we never know where we're gonna be, and we might need uh, a Kim. We might we we might need a myself one day. But the thing is, if we getting paid great, if we got benefits and we got a union, and we are strong in it, or whatever, then the world will see it. We have to stop looking at it as it's minute, it's, it's, it's nothing, it's belittling. It's, it's not. It's not. It's just how society have, have uh, stopped looking at things, like, like Kim was saying about short hair. Society have said to us as black women that if we have short hair, we are not pretty, we are not beautiful, if we are not light or we are not this complexion or whatever. The world, forget the, that's the thing, but our job is to change the mindset of negative, narrow-minded people. So I, that's all I had to say. Every one of those people sitting in Washington we either have to have a home care worker or they know someone that will. And that's the, the most important thing that I think in this fight and in this, this, uh, this continued campaign for, for fair wages and union that Washington needs to know, you're going to need my services one day. Are you going to pay me minimum wage or below minimum wage to take care of you? Because if so, then I should give you that kind of care. But I don't. I give you 150% when I'm on the job. So you're right. It is a job with dignity, and it should be treated as such. Well said, Kim. Anything else we want to, any other comments or questions we want to add in here? I, this is Carrie. I would just like to um, acknowledge and appreciate that the, all of the women on this call are black women and how important it is for black women to tell their own stories. Well, ladies, that's our time. It's been so wonderful talking with you about America's heroes, home care workers, and how black women are faring in the industry in the shadow of slavery and in the face of systemic structures that are really designed to hold them back and actually hold everyone back. So thank you, Elantris. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Fatima. And thank you, Carrie. And a special thanks to Miss Alberta Walker, Miss Dorothy Glenn, Miss Flora Johnson, and Miss Helen Miller. Thank you and all of the other many women for being home care heroes and for being pioneers for standing up for yourselves and other home care workers decades ago when you only earned a um, dollar an hour. It's because of you that your fellow union sisters, like Elantris, have a local union they can join together in. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to all of America's 3 million home care workers. We appreciate you and we need you. You've been listening to Legacy and Leadership, 
Black Women in Home Care on this episode of Healthcare on the Front Lines. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we'll be talking about innovations in healthcare. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.